Welcome everyone to a very special episode of the In Real Deep Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Semino, and with me, as sometimes, is a very special guest. You may have heard him on previous episodes of the podcast, including A Star is Born, Armageddon, and Dune. And I'm, of course, talking about our best friend, our beloved podcast partner, Dr. Chris. Hello, Chris. How are you? Okay, motherfucker! <laughs> we had, we had a, a stop and start issue on the previous record, and it was a lot calmer of an introduction the last time. But I like that more. <laughs> That's like our Armageddon star, where you alienated potentially our audience by screaming curse words at them very much as we got going. So it's good. Keep that trend going of yelling at them very loudly. Well, just giving tribute to Al as we start off this this heat pod. That's right. This is a movie where Al Pacino says a lot of very loud, angry curse words, of course. Chris referenced it. We're talking about heat. We've talked about Heat on previous episodes, our Justice for Al series with Andrew and our buddy Tom, but we really wanted to get into it from a different angle here because Chris and I were watching Heat recently, we were talking about it, we just sat down as, you know, two bros enjoying a feature film, and as we got deeper into what Heat was all about and what we were trying to say, we realized there was a whole other angle that Andrew and Tom and I hadn't really discussed on the Pacino episode, just about what Heat is as a crime film, what a crime film is, what those sort of movies are, and what they sort of say about society and American culture at large, and a whole depth of different, you know, elements that uh, we had not discussed on this uh, podcast before, so we decided it was time to really start dive into what is a crime film what they mean yeah you know watching that movie with you steve i it was clear that it it had put both of us in heat and we (laughs) couldn't help ourselves but to have uh, another pod on heat you know i listened to your pod um uh the, the first round of heat and i thought it was great and you guys went into detail on the performances of you know obviously clearly al and and robert de niro um and i I'm absolutely on your side on the Al performance and not Tom's side. Thank you. I'll make sure he listens to this. <laughs> yeah. So take that, Tom. Um, but, you know, I think we we started having this conversation about what is the heart of what a crime movie is and why do they fascinate us? Uh, why is it that we continue to want to come to the movies to watch these movies that can be violent or depressing or not exactly uh, something that puts you in a good mood at the end of it. And I think uh, what we're going to get into today is talking a little bit about how crime movies, in fact, um, use crime itself or the crime in the, de- depicted in the movie as kind of a MacGuffin. And what the, the movie is actually meant to do is illustrate some uh, interesting part of, of human society because there is no greater catalyst for either the disruption of a society or uh, the reaction of a society to to uh, something than a crime. Yes, I think this is a really amazing example of that. It's not the first by any stretch of the imagination. You know, 1995, this has been, you know, cops and robbers and crime films have been done since movies really existed. But what Heat does really well that I think we both enjoyed is really show not only the dichotomy between the cop and the robber and how they're the same and also different, but really show the sort of um, how they function in society, how they 
attempt to operate as normal human beings, where that falters, and how difficult it is to pursue a life on either side of the crime spectrum, and then also try and be a normal man or woman, but obviously in Heat, it's all men. But it, I just think, you know, it's just, as we were watching the movie, Chris, we kept commenting on the, the bullshit that either De Niro's character or Pacino's character would sort of spout to each other. Like, they, they, they love what they do, whether it is to, you know, commit crimes or to stop them, but at the same time, they feel compelled for either internal or external reasons to function as, you know, normal-ish human beings, you know, to pursue relationships, to have children, to have friends, to have, to have surrogate children. Like, they, 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 they try and they, they build these uh, relationships and these connections that they can't help but build. But at the same time, those are either liabilities in their, you know, preferred profession or just, it just means the things they say and the choices they make are not fully accurate. Like, they, through their own choices or through just the inevitability of denying their, their base impulses. And I think that is what I found most fascinating this time around is just the choices they make. And and I think Michael Mann, I, I don't know this was, this was the chief catalyst as to why he made the movie, but it's certainly a big part of it is just seeing where they're right, where they're wrong, where they're full of shit, and how that sort of guides the way they, they live their lives, you know, as they move forward. Yeah, and this is the first theme. I, you know, I think you guys covered a lot of the technical aspects of the movie and the performances in the first podcast, and I think we kind of wanted to tackle the themes that were within the movie that we found fascinating. And the first one that we both kind of clung on to was what this movie is, uh, in addition to being kind of a procedural-type crime movie as opposed to like a crime thriller or a crime horror or something of that nature, uh, or a superhero movie that has crime elements to it. Um, this is really an examination of two men who have the same affliction, but demonstrate a coping mechanism for that affliction in slightly different ways. Uh, both Al Pacino and Robert De Niro's characters are two men who simply can't function in normal society. Uh, they clearly... You know, by the time this movie is made for these characters, they're probably in their late 40s, early 50s. And they've spent uh, decades of their life coming to the realization that, as they mentioned in the movie, cookouts and hot dogs and baseball games and, uh, you know, family and all these things, they simply do not stimulate these men. Uh, these men have urges, they have uh, desires, they have itches that need to be scratched in ways that 99% of the rest of the world uh, does not identify with. And conversely, these men don't identify with how people can live a normal type life, as both Al and, uh, and uh, Robert De Niro say in the, uh, the diner scene, the normal type life. Now, the interesting thing is that one takes the tract of being the uh, criminal, one takes the tract of being the police officer. But for both, they are simply a conduit for satiating these very strange needs, whether it's for action, whether it's for creativity, whether it's for a challenge, that the rest of the world simply cannot satiate for them. That is all very, very true. And what I think is so wonderful about this movie, and it's something I probably picked up on every time I watched it, but I certainly, more this time, especially when we when we gabbed about it afterwards, is... 
there are many ways to read this film. And not in like, it's not like open to a ton of interpretation, but there is a very, you can sit down and watch this movie and go, it's cops, it's robbers, they're shooting, there's a bunch of stuff that goes on, Al's really loud and weird, and then at the end, the good guy wins. Like, that's a very reasonable way to watch the movie and very accurate. And like, as I imagine a bulk of the populace did, they just enjoyed it as a really good crime movie. But there is so much of like, everything you described is super true, but... These, again, these these guys, though they profess to be so removed from society, uh, a key crux of the story that keeps going back is they can't leave it behind. You know, like uh, De Niro, Robert De Niro's character, Neil McCauley, can't leave this woman behind. He does ultimately leave her, but he causes her a bunch of turmoil and gives himself a bunch of bullshit by pretending like he's this smooth operator who can either drop something in 30 seconds or, you know, power through and get through with this woman. And then Al Pacino has been on multiple marriages, and he's a little more self-aware than De Niro's character, but even then, he's in a marriage with this woman that's falling apart, and he seems aware of it falling apart, but he can't he refuses to do anything about it. And then even when his, you know, his adopted daughter has an overdose, he's there and he, and he, he probably saves her life. He does save her life, but then he still is like, I got to go back to work. Like it's, you know, and he just, he, the, neither one of them can turn this off, but they profess either a desire or a belief that they can, which I think is, is the part that I like the most is there are these, they, they know, they sort of know that they're, they're not maybe broken isn't the right word, but it's probably close enough. Like they're not normal. They know they're not normal. They don't really want to be normal, but they want to approximate it. They want in certain situations at cocktail parties, at dinners, they want to show up and be like, we're just one of the guys. We got our wife over here. We got this, we got that. But Time and time again, clearly they've been proven that that's impossible. And that ultimately, you know, at the end, that doesn't end up dooming De Niro's character, but certainly more than Machino is like the fact that he is incapable of refusing these human connections does add complication upon complication that leads to his eventual death. You know, in, in a way, Al Pacino, in, in being a little bit more of a self-aware dick, triumphs as a result you know like he's 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 in pursuit in a way that does not limit him it, it does limit his personal life but he can sort of pursue De Niro a little more unfettered because he's just he knows he sucks and he's uh a little more come to terms with that it's not making his life any easier but he's able to sort of do his job at the end in a little bit of a a more pursuing way as opposed to uh you know he's not he's not running he's he's pursuing he's trying to catch and I think that's that's in a way to me implies that he might be you know on on the side of uh the slightly more uh, well-adjusted side, given that, even though they're both super fucked up. So getting back to your initial point about how one could watch this film and see it purely as just a cops and robbers, awesome set piece action sequences, these two famous actors that we all love watching on screen and just the charisma of these two characters and the gunfights, it's a perfectly satisfying uh, movie just from that perspective. But I made the comment to you as we watched it again I've seen this movie probably five times at this point. I first saw it in my teenage years, and that's how I took it. Cool, guns, uh, cops, robbers, uh, bank heist, all these kind of uh, sugar rushes that are throughout the film that still sustain it as a film for a you know, 16, 17-year-old kid. Then I saw it again in my 20s, and now I'm seeing it again in my 30s. And each era of my life, I'm able to take a different... Um, meaning from the movie and see something that I appreciate more with age. And I think that's a testament to how the movie's made. It is a layered movie. You can take it in many different ways. 
um, the more or less educated that watch it or the more or less sophisticated of a moviegoer that watches it will still find something appealing within it. Um, and not to, you know, make comparisons of Michael Mann to William Shakespeare, but that was what, you know, we're always taught as we learn Shakespeare is what made him so, so brilliant and successful is that there were layers to any type of person that came to watch his plays that would satisfy them. And that's why I think this movie is so A, well done, and B, has such staying power. Uh, and moving on to your other point about the characters of uh, Neil McCauley and, and Vincent Hanna, we made an interesting comparison that I had not made before watching this movie. We're both huge Deadwood fans. And they did, in a way, mirror the relationship uh, between Seth Bullock and Al Swearingen. On the out, you know, the first look at these two characters, you think they're diametrically opposed. They couldn't be any more different. One's a lawman, and one's a clearly criminal, uh, you know, runner of a brothel. And then, as you get into the series, you realize that there is way more similar about these two than there is different. That again, just like Macaulay and Vincent Hanna, they're two men that couldn't survive in normal society. Uh, for uh, you know, for Seth Bullock, it was his anger and his need for violence. And for Al, it was his need for freedom and his willingness to use violence to gain that freedom. Uh, and then the entire society of the world of Deadwood. Uh, you talk about how both Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley can't help themselves but to want these quote-unquote normal human things. As you watch Deadwood evolve over the seasons, you see that these humans who nominally are trying to escape normal society cannot help but build a some something that looks like normal society. We now have a doctor, we have a lawman, we've created, you know, we've built a hotel, we're creating a bank. All of these things that we see in society that define a society in certain ways, these people that are pioneers that are trying to escape these normal pieces of, uh, of life on the East Coast or the Midwest at the time, they couldn't help but build them. Uh, and I think that plays itself out again in the, the characters of Macaulay and, uh, and Hannah. And just as you said, as much as these men are not wired for normal society, they still can't help themselves but to seek companionship. Uh, they can't help themselves but to seek love. And they're afraid of not having that in their lives. You know, the, Vincent Hanna should have known after the second divorce that he's not cut out for marriage. Call it selfish, call it lack of self-awareness. He simply can't help himself but to create at least the semblance of stability in his life and the semblance of a loving relationship even though he only provides his partner what she describes as, quote, the leftovers. And the same thing for De Niro with uh, Judging Amy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that's a real... And I, I think that ties into Michael Mann as well as a director in a lot of ways because he definitely gets pinged, and rightly so, for being a masculine-centric kind of guy. You know, he makes movies about men. The men are the leads. Like, there is almost always a woman or two or three there. But usually they exist to further the story or to 
uh, love the man or assist the man. Like they re- they usually don't have a lot of a role beyond that, which is it, all super true. Like I can't think of a man movie that doesn't meet those criteria. But at the same time, like he's not like a Michael Bay where he's puffing these men up as if they are super heroic and wonderful. Like he presents these, he he prefers the company of men in that way, but he likes like flawed, fucked up, sad, weird driven in a in a depressing kind of way dudes you know like he he likes these broken men who and he's not afraid to show their faults so i just think i just think that's a fascinating sort of way to be like you know for someone who is again uh dinged for his his preference to show a certain gender almost exclusively yeah but but he does not shy away from saying these are like horrible people <laughs> like as much as I love Vincent Hanna in this and as much as he ultimately gets the job done and you know is is quote unquote a like he's obviously a decorated cop and I would imagine they think a good one but he's reckless and he makes curious choices and he's far from a white hat you know like he's not a he's he's not as uh anti-hero as as many other protagonists come to be in movies and tv and you know a couple years down the line but he certainly isn't just a sweet sweet cop who's always doing the right thing like he's a fucked up man not only personally but professionally as well like he's just he's not all together and i and i like that man is not afraid to say that though he prefers men men are fucked up and weird and make bad choices yeah when you want you know i watched uh, the outsider and collateral uh fairly you know close to the time we we watched heat and the, uh excuse me the insider not the outsider um the insider is also a, a poor a portrait of flawed men uh that are and in that case that movie is circling around the concept of honesty and the concept of, of power and how power changes the definition of honesty uh and what does an ulterior motive look like, even if it can be for the best of reasons? Uh, and the same thing, Collateral is also just two flawed men <laughs> uh, duking it out in their flaws uh, throughout the entire movie with little to no female interaction. Uh, but when you talk about the flaws of these two characters, Vincent Hanna and Neil Macaulay, I think Macaulay's flaws are, are pretty you know, laid bare. He is a thief. In the one of the opening scenes, he okay's the murder of a couple of these prison of these uh, security guards. Um, he's cold. He's distant. He has nothing that seems permanent within his life. Uh, he's spent time in prison, and that has clearly made him into something that is um, not exactly uh, human anymore. I, I can't I can't think of a better way to describe it. A lot of his humanity has been robbed from him because of the choices he's made, but also from the institutionalization he's gone through. But the more interesting uh, examination of, of a flawed character is Vincent Hanna. And one of the things that took me watching this, this uh, time when we watched Heat was that action set piece that many view as one of the best set pieces in an action film in history, the bank robbery. What, I realized watching it this time is, you know what I'm actually watching is the LAPD led by Al Pacino's Vincent Hanna firing automatic weapons around crowds and crowds of people in downtown Los Angeles. And yeah, it sounds so absurd when you actually spell it out like that. These men robbed money. Fine. They stole money. Is the theft of this money worth and the apprehension of those who stole it, is it worth the bullets that are flying throughout a you know heavily populated area of a densely populated city? 
And as the, the set piece goes on, it's clear Vincent Hanna does not care. He doesn't hesitate. He returns fire. He continues his pursuit. And then the coup de grace is when Tom, you know, Sizemore picks up that little girl. There, I, I challenge anyone to find me any law enforcement handbook or training that tells anyone, no matter how highly trained you are, that the way to handle that situation is to take just a couple extra seconds to get your aim and adjust your your the gun on your shoulder, and then take the shot while the, the little girl's head is inches away from where your bullet entered Tom Sizemore's forehead. But he does it because he is high right now. This entire thing is a high for him. This pursuit, this hunt, and that high that he's feeling supersedes the death of men on his team, supersedes the safety of the civilians that are packed around this area that where bullets are flying. He doesn't care about that. And then as he as we continue down the road of the movie and we think there might be a moment of redemption for him where he does save the life of his stepdaughter and he's having a very, what appeared to be a warm, honest moment with his uh, soon-to-be ex-wife, he finally capitulates and simply says, I'm only as good as what I'm chasing. And basically tells her, I'm not what you want. And it is comforting that he does have that moment of, of self-awareness and introspection. But again, as his stepdaughter is in surgery, maybe not going to make it, he still abandons his wife to go and pursue, uh, you know, Robert De Niro's character because he simply can't help himself. Yeah, and as we sort of hinted, this it was... It's that's a real fine line to sort of walk, you know, and not only to walk it as a movie, but to make a movie that does not require you to walk it. It does not require its audience to recognize Al Pacino's Vincent Hanna as a tortured sort of bad guy in some ways. Like you can just you can watch it, as we said, and just say, wow, he's a cop and he did cop stuff and De Niro's bad and he's, you know, and, and like it's easy. Like maybe it's just because, you know, as men, we've been conditioned to be like men are men. And if they if their job is hard and if it distracts them and if it takes them away from their duties, that is just what they must do. You know, like that is they got to put food on the table. But again, man doesn't present it that way. Like it's easy to take it that way. But he does not give you a like bland ass generic hero who does bad things, but we excuse him for them. Like he makes the 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 penalty potential penalties at least of the choices Al Pacino's character makes very clear. And I just think that is a so good. Like it's just it's, I'm just so like this is a very long movie. There is it's two hours and forty minutes. It goes on forever. And but it also two hours and yeah two hours and fifty minutes even it's even longer than that it's it's probably with credits so maybe two forty five but it's not a tight ninety it's not anywhere near a hot little easy to consume film it's a lengthy lengthy feature film but there's not a lot of there's not a lot of fat on it either like there's not almost almost everything exists for a purpose there's a couple things that you could stand to cut here and there but but they all have value like nothing feels like an extra scene that they kept on for X reason. Like, you know, or like, or a reason you can't determine. Like, everything feels like he, man, had something to say in every scene. And that's just, that's a very rare concept to have a movie that, that, again, could be interpreted as just a too long action movie or a 
very lengthy crime film that doesn't discuss, like, it doesn't waste time or it doesn't take time to say, like, this is why crime exists, this is why these men are making these choices, but it sort of says the world is as it is, and these men exist in in the current world, and here are the choices they make based on the world they live in. And I think that's a really smart choice in a lot of ways. Like, rather than taking the the broad sort of David Simon approach of saying, like, this is how the pieces all fit together, and this is why bad people do bad things, he goes, no, no, like, here's just the bad person and the good person, and you sort of get what's, put them here, and here's what they do from there. And, like, that's a very, that's it's, it's amazing for a movie with that sort of focused on several people to last for two hours and 40 minutes and be that engaging. Like, it should meander, it should have dead space, it should have wasted time, and it really doesn't. It all makes sense and has value. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, you know, comparison you bring up with uh, The Wire. You know, a show like The Wire, which I think people would agree, generally speaking, is a, a crime show, but it's a show where the genre of crime that it's it's depicting is one of uh, it, it is examining very closely systems, the education system, the criminal justice system, the healthcare system that leaves so many people with addiction problems that are, you know, actually, you know, people self-medicating for psychiatric problems. Uh, the press in the final season of The Wire. That show very carefully and deliberately is examining wider systems and using characters within the show to depict the flaws in those systems. This movie is not a a movie about systems. Um, I think there are fleeting moments where it discusses some uh, commentary on systems. I think the Dennis Haysberth storyline does touch on the fact that when some of these men leave the penal system and try to reintegrate into life, the world doesn't want them back and it almost leaves them no choice, but to return to the life they came from uh, because it's the only, you know, the only smart economic choice available to them. But that storyline was given such little attention that I don't think we can really credit Michael Mann with uh, making a movie that is a commentary on the penal or correctional system and uh, the concept of rehabilitation of criminals. It really is an examination of people. Uh, that exist within or without of, a, uh, of any particular system. You know, you and I were discussing how, you know, just yesterday, how Neil McCauley's crew, each one of them is distinct in their own ways, and they find themselves in a life of crime for different reasons. Uh, for Val Kilmer's character, it's because he has these other demons. Uh, they make it clear that it's some sort of gambling addiction and probably some sort of substance addiction that is forcing him to rob banks because he's got to pay off his bookies. So there's some other sort of, uh, you know, eccentricity to that particular character that's forcing him to use crime to, to satiate that eccentricity. Uh, Neil McCauley is a very different character from him. He's cool, he's calm, he's in control, but there's nothing else in his life that gives him satisfaction like doing jobs. And Tom Sizemore's character appears to just kind of not have much else going for him mentally and needs a leader. And he finds that leader in Neil McCauley and he's riding adrenaline rushes. Um, And that is still distinct from the type of rush that I think uh, Neil McCauley gets. Neil McCauley says it himself. Do I look like a guy, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but something the effect of who's just chasing an adrenaline rush with a born to lose tattoo uh, on my chest. 
So him and Sizemore are different characters, despite both of them chasing something through crime. And then you have the Wayne Grow character, who is just this, you know, evil incarnate, uh, seeking chaos, seeking the the perverse satisfaction of murder or or harm to another human being. And so the the movie is not an indictment on any particular system or a, a well fleshed out commentary on any particular system. But it is an interesting examination of the types of, of the different types of people that are drawn to crime and the types of people that are drawn to chasing these men. Yeah, and I think that's something that we're going to talk about throughout this little miniseries we're going to do. And I think, again, Heat did not invent that by any stretch of the imagination. But I think Heat, in a very high-profile way, did, you know, did, did sort of give permission, for lack of a better term, to say, like, hey, you cast these this De Niro and Pacino movie, like, they didn't have to make that a good movie, you know? They didn't have to make the first meeting of these two titans into a nuanced depiction of what the psyche behind Broken Man. Like, that's a Michael Mann thing, and I think that the power of man combined with this really great cast and this epic sort of story, and the fact that it doesn't treat them, it, does, it doesn't trivialize their choices, it doesn't make it, uh, you know, one scene each where each person reveals themselves to be fucked up, and then you go into the movie, like, it takes pains to explain how the criminals, as you just noted, and also the cops get a little less, but, like, clearly the cops are still, you know, that, that, that's that been a little more trodden terrain, I would guess, across the board. But, like, it, either way, it does not just make it seem like everyone's having a good, nice time and being good. Like, it makes it clear these are all a interesting group of humans, and to properly break them down and dissect them requires minutes upon minutes, you know, of a very long feature film. And I think that... If it didn't directly lead to some of these crime movies we're going to talk about, it paved the way for them to be beyond just crime. It paved the way for it not just to be Batman versus the Joker, you know, given that we're going to talk about the Dark Knight. But it's like, you can explain who the Joker is and who Batman is, like, even in a comic book movie. Like, you're allowed to delve into why they're making the choices they make. And as you noted, that it, it's not the Wire-esque in, if it's, in its breakdown of systems, but it does imply what got them to where they are. And so I think that for a two-hour feature film is probably a pretty smart way to go about it is to say, like, you're not going to have time to really go into the nuts and bolts of how everything is the way it is, but you can... The, the most important thing to me is fleshing out your characters, making them vibrant and interesting and feel, if not real, then at least lived in. And then, oh, by the way, they sort of are what they are because XYZ is fucked up, and so now we're here. Like, I think that is a very smart approach for a lengthy movie, and I think it's one that all the movies we're going to talk about to some extent do, is just they, they present a world around them that is very defined and very clear, and characters that feel like they have been there for a while, and it has fucked them up to the extent that they now are what we're seeing in front of us. Yeah. And one comment I wanted to make about a point you had made uh, a few minutes ago about, you know, you, you guys talked in your first pod about how Michael Mann is a, a masculine director and is drawn to masculine stories. But in particular, this movie, uh, it's not a celebration of that masculinity in any way, because by the end of the movie, you see that there are consequences to this quote unquote masculinity. Um, it's not like, you know, Al comes home to his wife and says, you know, he gives his speech about how he's trying to protect her from all the evil things he sees in the world. And that's why he doesn't talk to her about, you know, the baby he found in a microwave or whatever. Uh, she makes it clear to him that that's unacceptable. 
that's not sharing, that's leftovers. I think that's an excellent line that she uses there. And the consequences for, you know, again, it's not her doting upon him because he's this heroic figure and he's this big, strong man that's fighting the bad guy. Uh, It's not that lazy trope that it could have been. By the end of the movie, they have only one another. That's it. He has lost, you know, it, it may seem like a heroic end for Al because he gets his man and as they're laying there holding hands as Macaulay dies. Just remember, uh, if the movie went on for a few more minutes, Al would let go of Macaulay's hand, start walking back to the hotel and realize he's lost his third wife. He's probably no longer going to be in the life of his stepdaughter, whom he appears to love. And his he has now become this empty person that only has in the waning years of his life, because he's no kid in the waning years of his life. All he has is chasing men like Neil McCauley. That's it. He's got no, he's got no TV. His TV's gone. Yeah. His his TV's gone. But I mean, that's, that is his reward for this quote unquote masculine approach to life. Yeah. It's like we said though, that's like, man, Man seems to be a very, uh, at this point he's made a bunch of films, so it's not surprising, but he seems to be so adept in that he, he understands that you do not need to put that in your movie for it to be a part of the movie, you know? Like, I think he gets that, you know, like we sort of said, you can make, he can make a movie where the ending is just, you know, the good guy beats the bad guy, and a lot of people will go, hey, that was cool. But he also, like you said, but most thinking people will be like, they'll, they'll, they'll spend moments pondering this film after and go, as you noted, like, fuck, like, that's going to be really tough for Pacino. <laughs> like, this isn't a, there's a, it, it doesn't, the world feels lived in, and it doesn't feel like a open and shut story that begins and ends with just what happens. Like, it feels like we've just picked up a moment in these very long, ongoing lives, and we're just getting a shot of this to this. And, this, and when we leave these characters... Like you said, they resume their lives, and that's gonna. And their lives are not always good. And they're, this is this might be the most exciting thing that ever happened to Vincent Hanna. You know, <laughs> he might. He's probably gonna go back to a very sad, weird life after this, and that's great. Like that is that, and, and that ties into what we want to talk about with these crime movies too. Is like they're not the best ones. I think the modern ones, the one that we're gonna discuss, really take pains to show that not only it's not even about crime paying or not paying. It's just like. This is a tortured world, and any choice you make, if you choose to, if you already choose to be in this world, the choices you make are going to affect everyone around you, and they're going to fuck you up royally in the process, and they're going to extend beyond the runtime of the movie. And the best ones make it very clear that, like, as we are saying goodbye to these characters, the fucked upness is just about is just starting. You know, <laughs> like there's there's epilogues that we'll never ever see where they are just real sad or real tortured or real concerned or real uncertain. And that's just I think that's great. Like I think the idea of an open and shut story is is a little antiquated, at least in in terms of really really good movies. I think you just don't want that a lot of the time. You or at least you don't mind a well told story that has a the end with an ellipsis or a question mark or something afterwards where you just feel like there is more to come and it's fun to sort of just wonder what that might be and, and envision what this world was beyond what we, what we saw on screen. Yeah. And I guess now as, as we're kind of coming to the close with this, uh, what we kind of pick these different movies, these different crime movies based on is they have just a different shade of genre, a different type of movie is made under the, 
auspices of being a crime movie. And so this particular movie, I would classify as kind of a, you know, procedural type crime movie where it exists in the quote unquote normal world. No one has superpowers. There is no fantastical element to it or religious element to it or a cult element to it. Uh, it's very real human beings doing very real things. And it's, again, it's not so much an examination of or a, a commentary on the criminal justice system or crime and those who try to seek justice for that crime. It's examining the type of people that use the concept of crime and justice as a conduit for satiating whatever craziness is within them. Uh, and each character is a little bit different. And Al and, and Robert De Niro have you know, the strongest characters in the movie. But one of the compliments I would give uh, to Michael Mann is if we're going to call this a sort of procedural type crime drama, uh, I would say he nailed the perfect amount of procedure. It didn't feel heavy. It didn't feel like it anchored the movie down. Uh, I don't feel like I have a, you know, a bachelor's degree in criminal justice after, after watching it. But there was just enough of it for it to feel real. And to, despite Tom's uh, casting aspersions on, on Al's performance, one, and I'm being serious when I say this, one of the things that made me realize how great a job he did in the role is when he was saying these seemingly boring procedural lines. When he's sitting in the, you know, the, when they're trying to bust him on that B&E that they end up getting caught because somebody makes a noise in the van, he does this kind of tired, you know, my situational uh, command overrides your rank. You know, he's the way he says that line, it's again, it's talking about rank and pulling rank and who has command authority in this tactical situation. But the way he says it is perfect and it's not boring. It doesn't feel forced. And Al, it, it's consistent with the character of Vincent Hanna hating the fact that he has to play by some kind of rules, even if those rules are benefiting him in this particular moment of, you know, chastising this, uh, this police officer who outranks him or later when they're busting Hank Azaria, that entire thing is not sexy. We're going to bust you for trafficking cigarettes across state lines. And that's how we're going, you know, we're going to extradite you to New Jersey, to Newark to bust you for ex, you know, for trafficking cigarettes. And that's how we're going to put pressure on you to go after Christopher's wife to eventually get to Christopher. It's these, very boring little subplots that are procedurally based that Al just fucking nails. And I don't think any actor can do that. Yeah. And, and, and he, like we said, he, he nails them, but he, but he, he seems to get really like we, you and I have to, him and De Niro both seem to fully understand their roles in this movie. And Al's role in a lot of the scenes you're describing are to hit these notes with, with pump and with excitement, but also to move on really quick. So like he explains what has to happen or what's happening and he does it in, in quick succinct detail. And then he moves on to like yelling about her ass and how great it is and making a big face and being all coked up. Like he doesn't really, he does. They, I think man probably told him like, Hey, I like got to hit this beat. Like I want this movie to make sense. So don't obviously mention this thing, but you know, once you get to like, the part where you're intimidating him, just fucking start yelling, you know, <laughs> like just go yeah. nuts and like, that's great. That's what it needs. Like, proceed, like you said, procedural elements are boring. Like, you know, spice it up with some, some real weird wild shit. And that's Al Pacino's real wheelhouse for sure. Especially in the mid nineties. So. 
Yeah, and of, of the many of the many things I have to say about this movie that I don't want to repeat because you guys covered a lot of them in your first podcast, the one thing I will always, always appreciate watching this movie is that these two actors, both of their performances from start to finish are so incredibly intense. Just every scene, every line is brought with intensity. And a different type of intensity from each one, obviously the Neil McCauley character is kind of this slow burning constant intensity and Al can swing and miss on a couple of them, but also hit a few of them way out of the park. Uh, but I don't think I will say Al gave that kind of intensity in his performance in the insider, but since his performance in the insider, I can't say I've seen that kind of intensity from any performance he's done since. And I correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's the last time you, any of us have seen that kind of intensity in a De Niro performance. You're not wrong, and I think that might be, you know, smart because they were, like you noted, they were getting a little up there in age, so maybe mid-40s was the last time they could conceivably sell themselves as such and not have it come across as weird or sad or, or full of shit. You know, Irishman, a different sort of intensity, and, and but I will say, even, as much as I love the Irishman, the scenes that are probably the worst are the ones when De Niro pretends to be a tough guy, you know, pretends to be intense. Like, Yeah, some of those are, are bad. They're yeah. not good. And They're I think objectively just, bad. Yeah. And I think that's part and parcel of just being a very old man. <laughs> you know, he sure. That's not the vibe they give off anymore. But you're super right. Like, both both of them brought their A game and then some for this movie. Like I said, they both understand very much what they're supposed to do. Like, it is – across the board, I'd say this movie, everyone in it really gets what is happening. Like, there seems to be no uncertainty. There seems to be no – no one giving a performance that is remotely out of place. Like, it all makes perfect sense. Like, Kevin Gage, the guy who plays Wayne Grow, is fucking amazing in this. And he's, like, some guy. Like, I don't think he's even in very yeah. many things. But, like, he is men- he is menacing to a terrifying extent. He is literally a bald, strange-looking man that you've never seen in any other movie. And he's not even that intimidating, like, physically. Like, he just has this unhinged quality to him that just makes him frightening. And I think all that is a testament to the fact that man knows what he's making here and wrote the script and directed it and is like, here's my movie, like, make it. And everybody, you know, he seems to be, if he, if he is hyper-masculine, that certainly translates to his uh, ability to, I would say, to corral his actors and actresses because they all seem to be doing exactly what I imagine Michael Mann wants them to do. So I bet that he's really telling them how to do their jobs in this one. Yeah, it, just like we were saying, it was just the right amount of procedural. It was also just the right amount of Wayne Grow, like the perfect amount of Wayne Grow to like terrify you, to kind of keep you up for a few minutes extra that night when you watch it, being like, "God, that guy's fucked up." He's a MacGuffin, like you said. Like he's he sort of just exists. He appears and he exists to just threaten everybody and be in the periphery all the time. But it never feels fake. It's like, yeah, this guy's a fucking nut. And they, I get why they'd be desperate enough to take him on, and I get why he'd be crazy enough to make these choices. And like, it does not feel created for the sake of giving the movie a big bad. It's like, yeah, of course. I bet there's nuts like this everywhere. Like you know, it does not. For somehow it works. It, it probably shouldn't work in most movies, but it works here. No, it's it's. I think. He's a reminder, and but what by that I mean, when you're watching this movie, if you forget about Wayne Grow, it feels like uh, Macaulay and Vincent Hanna are playing a game. It's a chess match. It's a cat and mouse game, and the only stakes are just this money that's federally insured, and nobody's really getting hurt. Wayne Grow reminds you that this world that these two men use as a as a chessboard, this world actually has consequences. This world of crime. 
People get murdered. People get uh, raped. Uh, mothers lose their daughters. And the world of crime, uh, just like, you know, name any other world you want, the world of drugs, whatever, while there are some parts that may appear benign and we overreact to them as a society, there is still these worlds attract a certain type of people sometimes that will render very serious consequences uh, to the people in our society if we don't have some sort of policing upon them. So I think that's Wangro's most important role is a reminder that this is not a game, that people's lives are at stake, that people's lives are ruined and devastated by the consequences of, uh, you know, this game that Macaulay and Vincent Hanna are playing. I think that is a wonderful transition to wrap up this too, because like in looking at all the movies we're going to talk about, which we just talked about heat. We're also going to talk about the dark Knight. We're going to talk about seven and we're going to talk about no country for old men. I would say all one thing those movies all have in common and something that does happen in the nineties to now is as you noted, like the crime movie as a genre, in, in, at least in, in some of these very high profile ones we're going to discuss is not about good versus bad. All of a sudden there is this element of instability to it. Like it's sort of like movies become less afraid to, to make it seem not, not like a noble enterprise by any means, but like, you know, the good guy will catch the bad guy and it will be neat and tidy and we will call it a day. And all these movies we're going to discuss. And I think there's no coincidence that the most lauded are the ones that take a step back and say like, there are some fucked up people in this world. As you know, like there are some very strange, very uncomfortable, very awful people. And like, and and pretending like it is this like elegant sort of chess match is wrong because people are getting hurt and and the parts that you know the, the sensationalizing like you said it may be infrequent but it is the part we don't make movies about a ton because movies you know at least traditionally like to be wrapped up in a neat package and say the movie's over you know 90 minutes are done John Wayne caught the bad guy call it a day but a lot of movies in the 90s and beyond say no no like if there are clear ramifications to this choice is these people are usually unwell and have done wild things. And even if you catch them, that is not the end of the story. The story persists beyond then and the people involved in it are irrevocably broken. I think that is something that people respond to because again, it might be a little sensationalized, but it's more realistic than we have caught the bad guy. Now everything resets back to zero and we call it a day. We should uh, do a thought exercise podcast on uh, whether wh- what would the movie have been like if we took Ocean's Eleven and put Wayne Grow in the crew, <laughs> and, he, and he went wild and started killing all the people. Well, no, no, we don't have to right. do it now. We'll get I just to that. Want our listeners, as you go to sleep tonight, think about Ocean's Eleven plus Wayne Grow. <laughs> I want to give uh, just a couple. Shout outs as we're closing this pod uh, that I had to say that I loved about the movie. John Voight's entire look loved it. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I have on this paper De Niro fucks, Al fucks, Kilmer's ponytail fucks, <laughs> Kilmer in jeans fucks. <laughs> and finally, we also uncovered a, a real conspiracy on here that Michael Mann clearly has no concept of money or how much real estate costs in Los Angeles, because judging Amy's apartment is probably $3,400 a month in rent. And she's like this weird graphic artist. There's no way she could have paid for that awesome apartment. So Michael Mann has a little bit of a blind spot there. 
Yeah, Michael Mann might. And in 1995, he was already probably traveling in pretty high circles. I don't think he knew what the regular folk were necessarily up to. <laughs> so. <laughs> Those are all great, great notes. And again, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Heat, that's wrong. You need to go watch Heat. Heat is a classic film. Heat is wonderful. We've talked about it in episodes in our archives, but more Heat. We, it's, it's so good that it needed two more hours. No, it needed another hour of solid conversation. So this is great. I'm so glad we could talk about it again. And as we said, it's just the gateway to us talking about more crime movies. So if you haven't subscribed to the NRLD podcast, subscribe right now. We're going to have two concurrent series going here. We're going to have Andrew and I talking about Tom Hanks, and we're going to have Chris and I talking about crime movies. So next up is a movie that is incredibly indebted to Heat's specifically in William Fickner, Colonel Willie Sharp's role in both films, but also in many, many other ways. Like, it feels like Christopher Nolan just giving a big love letter to Michael Mann. That's going to be The Dark Knight. That's going to be our, our exploration of how the superhero movie can be grounded and tell a crime story with, you know, pretty, pretty stark success. This is just a William Fickner podcast series masquerading <laughs> as a crime series. Are we going to talk about what's that Nicolas Cage movie where he's drive angry? We're talking about drive angry. He's in that a lot. We can, we can find some other Fickner. I know you can. <laughs> I do enjoy William Fickner. So. But even if there's no Fickner, there's plenty of episodes to come. So subscribe, listen, inrealdeep.com, all the other good stuff. You can join us as we uh, traipse through a bunch of very modern, very good crime films. So, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for the cattle being the catalyst for this series. I'm very excited to uh, talk about more shooting and villains and cops and all that shit as we move forward. My pleasure, Steve. And thank you all for listening. We appreciate it so much, and we'll be seeing you further on up the road. Adios. Mm-hmm.